know god god for me is like this grounding of like love like that love is really at the center of everything even though it does not feel like it most of the time um, sure. <laughs> that love is at the center of creation and the fact that we are loved is like at the center of who we are and how we're invited to like be in the world and i think that's probably very powerful for me because i was also a, a, a tiny perfectionist who like got a lot of my self-worth from doing well in school and like wanted to be this like teen writing prodigy. Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Polly Reese. Fam, I am 100% delighted to bring you today the Reverend Megan McDermott. She is a poet. She is a stand-up comedian. She is an Episcopal priest currently working in Massachusetts. Here's your content warning for this episode. We talk a lot about Christianity, Christian supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. So as always, viewer and listener discretion advised. We go on to talk about our shared experience growing up in very Midwestern-feeling central Pennsylvania. We talk about rural and suburban small towns and communities, specifically the values of those communities that we embrace and some of the ones that we let go of. We talk about the nuances between different Christian subcultures and how they formed us as kids. Looking at you, Christian pop culture, toys, and music. We go on to talk about the relationship between Christianity and late-stage capitalism. More on that Christian pop culture. What it was like for her to become a layperson and work with young people as a clergy person during the pandemic and her books, Jesus Merch and Woman as Communion. This was a privilege to get to talk to my old Yale buddy. Please enjoy my chat to Reverend Megan. So first and foremost, number one, like it's insanely hot. Um, and, and you work in a church. Um, you, work in, yes. you work in an Episcopal church um, as a priest. So that means that you're, you're, you're melting under like lots of layers of liturgical fabric. Yes. And I, I feel like it's a position probably a lot of clergy and churches are in because our old buildings, which are lovely and beautiful, are <laughs> not designed with air conditioning. And, right. you know, it's challenging and expensive to outfit them with air conditioning. So we yes. just have huge fans. But if a fan is too loud, then you can't hear anything and so we have to turn the fans off for the sermon and then turn them back on so it's a whole it's a whole process but it's amazing i people show up and i think i might be looking at the temperature and deciding not to show up but people still show up so maybe that's inspiring maybe that's how i should be at it i I love the idea of like people 
people like coming for any number of reasons. I mean, I guess community to hear to what whatever whatever like patterns mm. like that 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 help them like feel good and have have like a good start to their Sunday. And that that also like they they inspire you too. Well, and and the other amazing thing about vestments is people don't really know what you're wearing <laughs> underneath. <laughs> so you can kind of, you know, all think, is this dress too short for church? And then I'm like, well, they won't see. So, you know, I could go all of Sunday without anyone actually seeing my outfit. So at least I have that to fall back on of like, <laughs> I can wear something somewhat cool under the vestments because uh, no one's going to know what's under there. For someone who is unfamiliar with the term vestments, can you describe like what that would look like and, and what it feels like to wear something like that? Yes. So vestments are basically uniforms <laughs> for clergy and sure. um there are also things that people who are ser serving up at the altar wear. Um, and so at my church, that usually looks like essentially a white robe with, uh, it's called a cincture, like a white rope kind of around it. Uh, yeah. And then... Like a low-tech belt. Yeah. What would the non-church equivalent be for stole? It's kind of like a scarf, yeah, <laughs> a little scarf that matches the colors of the different seasons. So it's a little toasty if yeah. if it's hot. Winter, you get extra <laughs> layers though. So. Right, but in the summer, it's a little hot. Um, but it does kind of like set you apart and enter into a different mode for worship yeah. by like having a costume change essentially. Yeah. So two, two reflections. One, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of like the, the robe, um, d depending on like what, what church you go to, I'm aware that it might be like a robe that sort of like crosses the front and has like some sort of closure mm -hmm. in the front and might be something that's more like a bleach white muumuu -moo that just pulls over the head. I'm imagining like a, like a crossover between like, a liturgical vestments store and like Uniqlo or like some sort of like pregnancy line, like maternity line. <laughs> One. It's not the most flattering <laughs> thing in the world. Yeah, that's that's accurate. The the other thing that comes to mind is that clergy are perennially dressed for pumpkin spice latte season. Oh, that's I could see that. Yeah. Like there's the scarf that's heavy, but not too heavy. There's like the overlayer. If, it, if it's like really cold, like you might put on another thing, depending on like what sort of liturgical tradition, you might have something that goes around your wrists or other ropes mm. or fancy belts that you wear. Yeah. Lots of layering. Yep. The other thing that I, that I immediately wanted to jump to is that you and I have some, some sort of like childhood geography connection. Like we both yes. grew up in like deep central Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And I think you said the town that you grew up in was Lewisbury. Is that is that correct? Yes, Lewisbury, not Lewisburg or Lewistown. <laughs> Lewisbury, which is uh, like 15 minutes outside of Harrisburg. Was this like suburb, medium town, small town, or like outpost in the middle of farmland? 
I would say where I lived was suburb. I yeah. think there is a town that's very tiny of Lewisbury, but <laughs> where I lived in particular was like a suburban development, basically. Got, yeah. The the thing that that as we were talking became an increasingly clear that of all of those things we hold most in common and probably have the least like traumatic memories of potentially even great memories of is Hershey Park. Yes, Hershey Park. It's funny, my parents were just telling me the other week that they're going to go to Hershey Park on their own. And I was I was shocked. I was like, did you even like going when when I was a kid? They've been watching a lot of YouTubers who like go visit places and just record themselves. So they're going to go to Hershey Park without me. So I'm interested to hear what their experience is like. But yeah, I went with my family, dragging them to go. And then, of course, we had a couple of field trips. Uh, yeah. We had our big eighth grade field trip to Hershey yeah. Park. We had a physics field trip to Hershey Park. That was all about doing physics problems, but not really. And I did you ever go to concerts at Hershey? Yes, I did go to concerts. Um, tell tell me about you, your favorite one. I went to this. This is revealing my very sophisticated uh, musical taste. When I was fifteen, for my fifteenth birthday, I went to a concert that was Corbin Blue, Allie and Ooh. AJ. And Drake Bell. That one was exciting. I went to Demi Lovato with David Archuleta as the opener. But there was a thunderstorm. And so David Archuleta performed like as much as Demi did. But still enjoyable. <laughs> and then the Jonas Brothers featuring mm. the cast of Camp Rock 2. So seeing, seeing a trend. <laughs> you were a Teen Nick kind of girl growing up. Teen Nick, Disney... All, all about it. All about it. <laughs> I I remember like, so like I, I was a teenage girl growing up as well. But I think um, of a slightly earlier era, mm. like thinking in the realm of like the first days of SNCC, right? Um, yep. Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh, gosh. Roundhouse, the Ren and Stimpy show. Mm. And like the the earliest season of all that. Oh, hey. You know what I've rewatched? some of since the pandemic keenan and kel i'm not a hundred percent sure but like i feel like keenan thompson is the next like dick clark that mm. regardless of how old he gets he will always look the same until someday mm. like out of the blue tragic passing and we're all like nobody knew anything was wrong <laughs> And he'll always be working. Like he's not going to ever be out of a job. Yeah, he will always be the elder statesman of sketch comedy. Like they mm. will make like they'll make like the I don't know like the Masters League of Saturday Night Live, and they'll only hire people who are over the age of fifty five. And Keenan will be there, and will look exactly the same as he did when he was first hired for all that. Like so, Central Pennsylvania. What what was it like? having that be sort of like the origin location of your story. What was yeah. it like to grow up there? I feel like my area of central PA was very like on that line between suburban and rural. And I think kind of both 
suburban and rural culture like kind of coexisted in the geographic area I was in. And I think it really depended on probably your family, your exact neighborhood, class, etc. Whether you really had a rural experience or like a more suburbia experience. Because I, I remember one of my good friends from college she came to my parents' house once and and she said, they said, right. you know, they weren't like taking us to the farm show or immersing us in kind of the more rural aspects of things. So like my experience was very suburban, but I think yeah. some of my classmates in school growing up, like they had much, some of them had much more rural experiences and i think we might describe the culture there differently that so first and foremost like that sounds like the the location for the real life desperate housewives right that'd be interesting (laughs) yeah Uh, in in one geographic location it's so easy to have so many different experiences like your your friends have spent so much more time in the the more rural sort of because yes like Outside of outside of Harrisburg, as soon as you get what, like 10, 15 miles outside of Harrisburg, like it's farmland, rolling hills, like very sort of Midwest, maybe even in some places, at least for me, Appalachian. Well, and when I go back, I particularly, you know, when I was living in New Haven and would like go back to Pennsylvania, it was kind of jarring, like the lack of diversity and the realization that I didn't really reflect on that when I was growing up. But like, I remember, you know, being at a bar restaurant with my family and like looking around and being like, every single person in here, as as far as I know, and can tell visually is white. And then realizing that's like always been the case in almost every space I grew up in. I was not as conscious of that until I was in other environments that were more diverse. And then you go, oh, this is like actually really kind of strange. <laughs> you know, it's a very, there, there's something about the world. Um, I'll, I'll describe a similar experience mm-hmm. of, of like, go, like visiting central Pennsylvania. Yes. You, you don't notice some of those things until you have something else to, to compare them to. I think racial and country of origin diversity is definitely one of those things. One of the things that you told me about um, growing up in central PA is that you were raised um, in like the sort of like Catholic worship environment. I wonder um, if you can describe what that component of, of growing up was like, how you see elements of that reflected or not reflected um, in your work today. From a fairly early age, I was kind of attracted or interested in church uh, mm-hmm. and in prayer. I remember in elementary school, you know, I, I did my first communion, um, which is such an interesting tradition now being in the Episcopal Church, where for the most part, we don't kind of yeah. celebrate it in the same way because you know, you have the little girls and like <laughs> these wedding-esque dresses, <laughs> which is like at once very odd. And also I look back on my pictures. I'm like, oh, it's so cute. It's like weird, but 
you know. So I was, I did that. I did CCD, which is their like Sunday school equivalent, but it happened during the week. I tried to acolyte for a while. And I remember they put me on a team. And so they didn't rotate through like where you were with different kids every week. You were always with the same team. And my team was me and three siblings who all went to Catholic school and I went to public school and who had been acolyting forever. And I just felt like I am not. And and I hate fire, too. So I think I like hated trying to light the the candles. It stressed me out. You know, I was an acolyte drop out and now I'm a priest. When I was, you know, sixth grade or so, I remember researching all the world religions mm. and I was mm. like seeing if I wanted to switch because I just got it into my head at that like young age, like, oh, I don't want to believe something just because my parents do. And then I remember being like, oh, I still like Jesus. So I guess I'm going to be Christian, which felt kind of anticlimactic, 11 year old (laughs) stuff. But I started going to like a Bible study some people at school were doing, which looking back, I would say leaned like evangelical, non-denominational. I don't think I like really comprehended <laughs> that at the time. Yeah. But it was the first time I was really exposed to the idea that like your religion could be a core thing about you. And not just like one among many demographic facts about who you are. And that like, you know, that the Bible has something relevant to say to us in our lives. Like I didn't really get that feeling from my Catholic church growing up. And I didn't really necessarily get that from my parents either, who like they prioritized having us go to church. But and I know that they must have prayed prayed with me because I remember praying as a child. Yeah. But I, I just remember kind of being introduced to that Bible study and feeling like, oh, there's another level in which I can enter into my faith if that's yeah. what I want. And so I kind of knew even as I was getting confirmed in like eighth grade, I had it in the back of my head that like maybe I'm going to like want to be Protestant when I'm an adult. (laughs) And, you know, but you go through with it anyway, because you're 13. And like, how do you articulate that to your parents or whatever? So I think by the time I was a teenager, I was just I was kind of tackling faith on my own, which I think was not the healthiest (laughs) thing. Like I was still going to church I was often the one being like, mom and dad, yeah. let's go to church. And they were like, okay. One of the things that that I'm so curious to explore um, like in these conversations is what we use the language of prayer and faith very comfortably. But the more time that I spend talking with people about these ex- these deep sort of like, not just like things that we do or places we attend but things that impact us on like that sort of gut core level the more i realize there are subtle differences that that are there that we don't always explore because we haven't we we assume that when we use those words they're always like everyone understands what we mean when 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 they're different so when you think about like this this language of faith can you can you say more about like what that 
what that means, at least to you now. Okay, to me now and not... If you can access what it means yeah. to Leo Megan, yeah. I mean, I remember one of the most powerful things for me when I was like in my early teens was like the idea of a God who I could just be my real self with Mm. and be. And so I really put on an act, I think, even to myself sometimes of like, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. (laughs) People can make fun of me. I don't care. Like they're just shallow. Like, and I just remember once it was at this like Christian worship festival that I ended up going to with some of the like people from my middle school Bible study and having this moment where I was like, it's okay for me to like be hurt by things. And like, Mm. it's okay for me to be honest with God about that and to not have to all the time be like this strong I don't know defiant person like I think I think it got me in touch I don't know I've always been a very an emotional person but I do think it 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 got me in touch with my emotions in a different way than I was letting myself Mm. um and kind of drew me into trying to be a little more gracious with other people because I think I felt very judged at that age. And so I judged other people (laughs) really harshly. (laughs) Like I was a know-it-all. Like I I look back and I'm like, I can understand why I probably ruffled some feathers (laughs) of people when I was that age. Because I think I thought I was smart and deep and, you know, these other people weren't. So I think back then the idea was huge to me of like, having god or like who's beyond me yeah and is who i'm able to open up to in a way that i can't necessarily in the rest of my life and i mean i think that's still a part of my faith too that's so illuminating i just there i hear like a sense of like the the capacity like a, a place that is safe enough to be as you said, vulnerable and to to be the truest version of of Lil Megan. There's your stage alias for for um, your, your stand up, um, but um, the, that you could be. And at the same time, like as I tried to pursue, you know what what does it mean to be a Christian? As I tried to pursue that more seriously, the more like toxic ideology that I was coming in contact with in, you know, these Christian books and magazines aimed at teenage girls or some of the like contemporary Christian music at the time, (laughs) like Barlow Girl, comic, like their lyrics are comically atrocious in some songs (laughs) when I look back. So I think on some levels, I was connecting with like this liberating, comforting part of my faith. And then on other levels, I was getting really anxious about Mm. like, what does it mean to be a good Christian? Is it having to be perky all the time and happy and joyful all the time? And like, what does it mean as a woman to like, well, as a young woman at the time, a, a girl, you know, what is my faith asking me to do? And so I think I, as I tried to lean in, 
to this faith that was really compelling to me, I also, it was also cultivating anxiety about like, I, I can't live up to this image I'm getting in my head of like yeah. what a Christian is supposed to be. I want to lean into a little bit and try mm. to understand a bit more is what the role of prayer is in mm. the language of faith. Can you say a little bit more about what prayer was for Lil Megan? Yeah. I look back and I'm like, I feel like prayer was very anxious. It was like, mm. I was afraid of like people I loved going to hell in a way that I am not now. Because I think I was mm. buying this narrative of like, if someone hasn't like very specifically given their life to Jesus in a specific kind of way that they're like mm. in danger so I feel like I was praying for other people who I felt like were in danger. And I was praying for myself because I felt like I remember thinking, I don't know if I'm cut out to like be a Christian when I'm an adult. Because I just remember so many periods where I felt I felt doubt. But then I felt guilt about the doubt. And I think that's the thing that really gets you stuck because like questions and doubts are like a part of life. But when you start yeah. having fear-based reactions to like your own thoughts, you know, it's it's not spiritually, I think, healthy or fulfilling. So I think a lot of my prayers were like... Yeah, wanting myself to be different, wanting other people to be different. That's, I feel like that's really far from how I think today. I think I also sure. was very much like, I don't know, concerned I wasn't praying enough. And I think sometimes I'm, <laughs> sometimes today I'm still concerned I'm not praying enough, but it comes from a different place, I think. I think now when I'm like, oh, I really need, it really would be helpful for me to like have a more regular spiritual discipline. I'm usually thinking about it in terms of like, that's what my soul is craving and could like flourish mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. rather than I think God is mad at me because I'm not praying enough. There's a cruel incongruous thing that I that I think I think that I hear there because you talk about prayer being this thing where there are specific ways you're supposed to do it a certain there's a certain quota that you have to reach although nobody knows what that what the exact number of that quota mm -hmm. is in order for you to have done enough and there and it makes you you talked about little Megan feeling a certain way, um, like feeling a lot of anxiety when in when the relationship with with God, with the the beyond the great divine that you described was all about the piece of feeling the most authentic of self, which was decidedly mm -hmm. like the work of releasing anxiety and releasing the the school front of little Megan. The way that I look at my faith has changed for the better is that sure i think particularly kind of in my college years kind of having this realization that like why would the god who has created like everything like want to shove us into these boring predictable boxes yeah. of behavior especially around like gendered behavior like the idea that you know, God wants 
would want me to be like only this very particular kind of woman and every mm. every person every woman who is christian should be the same type of woman like when you think about it it just like doesn't match i think the the broader vision of god that you know i see in the scriptures and that i feel like i've encountered in my life like i think i came to believe that like god empowers us to be more boldly who we are and that like that doesn't mean sometimes we don't like do fucked up things but like yeah to that god is making me more of myself um rather than less um and making me more my unique self i think that was an important shift for me to realize um and if i didn't i don't know if i would i definitely wouldn't (laughs) be a priest if i didn't have that shift and you know who knows if i would even be involved in church at all if if i didn't kind of have that change and what I saw God's purposes being yeah. in our lives. I would love to continue on from that point, like the the purpose of, of God in our lives. And previous guests have talked about lots of different understandings of the mm. nature of the divine, use lots of different language to describe what that is like and what their experience of the divine is. I wonder if you can tell me uh, what what God is to you now and because of what that is how that gets you to this work of being a priest in uh in amherst uh, massachusetts it's a good question it's a big question um let's see for some reason the thing that's like coming to my mind right now is some of the work that i do with youth in Mm -hmm. in my parish and just how important it is to me for them to have a space where they're being told, you know, what you achieve, however you want to measure that, is not the most important thing about you. I know God God for me is like this grounding of like love, like that love is really at the center of everything, even though it does not feel like it most of the time. Um, sure. That... <laughs> Love is at the center of creation and the fact that we are loved is like at the center of who we are and how we're invited to like be in the world. And I think that's probably very powerful for me because I was also a, a, a tiny perfectionist who like got a lot of my self-worth from doing well in school and like wanted to be... Yeah this like teen writing prodigy and then that it didn't happen right like i and i you know i applied to princeton and the, these schools that i didn't get into and all of a sudden it was like mm. oh i did all this work and like put so much of my identity into being this good student um and no matter how hard you work you still might not get what you want And then who are you then, I think, was I remember being confronted with that. Going into my freshman year of 
being a creative writing major and like wanting to be the best, yeah. you know, realizing that, that was not always going to be the case. There are going to be people who are better than you or by some standard or, or that you might perceive as being better than you. And so what is, you know, what is the stable ground on which I can build my identity and sense of worth? And for me, that's God. That's beautiful. I'm just sort of reflecting on the the sense of stability and mm. how how powerful a simple sense of stability is and and frankly how attractive it is in a world mm. that is so full of instability. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned to me as we were getting started is that the youth have different n- different um needs and concerns around faith formation now than um what they did in the past. I wonder if you can tell me more about that. Well, yeah, I think some of it for me is just comparing like one, the religious context that I grew up in, you know, growing up in the Catholic church, and then also just the cultural context of being in central PA. And Amherst, Massachusetts is very different from central PA. And it's, you know, the Episcopal church is very different uh, to grow up in, I think, than the Catholic church. So like- For me to like really come into an ordinate, come into a denomination that had women's ordination and like to realize I could do that was like, that was like this wild thing to me, right? These kids have had women clergy and have seen women clergy, you know, preside and preach their whole lives. That just is normal to them. And I think there are lots of things that are just normal to them, like always surprises me. Like um, I did a little lesson. I think this was back in, um, there was a year where we were all virtual at church because of COVID and I was doing Zoom youth group and, you know, we did this video and discussion on faith and science. And the idea of the like curriculum, the material was to kind of encourage youth to be able to see those as going together and not as automatically being these conflicting things that are butting heads, which at least in my experience of growing up in central PA, I think is a narrative you hear a lot of, you know, I can't believe in evolution because I'm a Christian, or I don't want you to teach my kids evolution because we're Christian or things like that. I just remember asking them like, if you've ever like seen these things pitted against each other and they were like, well, maybe on TV. And I just went, Oh yeah. Cause <laughs> they're, you know, in a pretty progressive part of Massachusetts. Yeah. I'm always striving to hopefully facilitate some like level of personal connection to their faith and to scripture and we're a very academic community in Amherst so we have a lot of faculty and staff from Amherst College or Hampshire or UMass who are a part of our community and a lot of kids who have parents who are professors or and so I think sometimes their temptation if we're talking about the Bible is to approach it in the way that they would in like a 
a lit class, like mm. where they want to get the right answer. You know, I don't think they always approach it that way, but I think, you know, it's that academic background, I think could be a good thing. And it can also sometimes stifle you from like entering into a text that you don't feel qualified to interpret. I mean, mm. and I think this is my like inner Protestant soul coming out where I'm like, you all can interpret the Bible. Like, you all are capable of it. Um, so, yeah, there, I think there are. And I, and I think their context is also like, it's much rarer. It's much more rare to like have a Christian identity and be an active churchgoer at their age than I think it was at my age growing up in central PA. I think it was still fairly rare to be like pretty serious about your faith or like talk about it a lot. But I feel like the default assumption was that like everyone was kind of Christian. And that's not the default assumption here, which is like a good thing because not everyone not everyone is <laughs> Christian, right? So you don't want to yeah. assume that everyone is. But I imagine it shapes the way that they see church in themselves a little bit to feel like it's not the most common thing in the world, maybe, for them mm. to be Christian or to be going to church. If you're like me, you love it when it's easy and uncomplicated to put good out into the world. And nothing helps you do those things more than a strong cup of coffee. Enter today's sponsor, BVP Coffee. BVP Coffee Company provides single origin coffee and unique blends from all around the world, all produced right here in Philadelphia. Their latest coffee, 1867, is an ode to the rich and illustrious legacies of Howard University and Morehouse College. BVP Coffee donates a dollar from each bag sold to support business students attending historically black colleges and universities. I tried it and loved it and makes a great iced coffee. BVP Coffee has a special offer for Uncommon Good listeners. Right now, you can go to their website, bvp.coffee, and save 10% on your order by using the code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout. You can even use this code for recurring coffee subscriptions, so you're always saving 10% and never missing a day of delicious coffee. When you use our code, you're supporting coffee farmers, HBCU students, BVP Coffee, and the podcast. That's code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout at bvp.coffee. Now back to the program. I'd love to hear more about the difference between like the world that you see where you use the language of default Christian, where there are assumptions of a certain level of familiarity with that sort of with those practices, it, at mm. least what what I what I think what I think you're getting out of, of going to church, like the practice of of like having a life that that re includes regular attendance at, at church, some sort of like religious observance versus a culture where that isn't the, the case. I wonder if you can describe um, how you feel like the culture is different when there isn't the assumption that everyone is regularly going to church and is at least a little bit familiar with that sort of lifestyle. Like talking about it now, like I think I often perceive it as like a geographic thing, but I also think it's a, tra 
a trajectory in time that is happening throughout the U.S. and many places, right, of like, you know, as people who are connected to the church, we hear these narratives about church all the time. And as younger people, we we like know from just our social lives that like, it is somewhat rare, <laughs> I, th- I think, to, th- th- well, actually, the other day, I was at Amherst Coffee, which is like a bar cafe in Amherst, and I started talking to this couple, and they were like our my age. The guy was an Episcopalian, and we like freaked out. We were like, "Oh my!" Because <laughs> um, it just like seems rare, right? Yeah. Like it that like you don't necessarily expect when you're just going out about in the world and not like at a church related function that you're going to come across a young adult sure. <laughs> who shares that identity. So so I think it's difference happening on on two levels, right? Of like I think the religiosity in this part of Massachusetts is different from where I grew up, but it would also be interesting to like eavesdrop on the conversations about religion from like high schoolers in the where I grew up because probably fewer and fewer of them have grown up in churches even there that I mean that's an assumption that's like a wild guess but yeah I think in terms of how that shapes ministry I think I'm I'm always thinking about what particularly with youth but I I think this applies more broadly across all the demographics of like what do we offer that you can't get somewhere else and so I think I probably lean into a lot more conversation on faith maybe than some models of youth ministry because we we like do fun things too like we'll go this past year we went rock climbing indoor rock climbing and sure mini golf and and you know all those like classic youth group things but it was also important to me this year we had monthly discussions usually over lunch um and we did a set of lessons around faith and wellness and like how faith intersects with the way that you care for yourself spiritually and mentally and emotionally and physically and so on. I hope that they'll experience something distinctive that like the Christian tradition can offer them other than just like service projects and fun, which are great, but like you can easily get those in a lot of context. Um, So I think, I think about that a lot of like, am I, teaching or guiding conversation or making opportunities for them to make a personal connection with kind of the Christian tradition, you know, they'll all have their own journeys, right. Of figuring out, especially as adults, what they believe or not, but, um, right. Yeah. What do you think it is that it that is distinctive about the Christian tradition that is not offered or at least hard to find elsewhere? I think to be motivated to really stay and put up with all of the interestingness of church, especially as a young person. Um, 
that's and the nicest way I've ever heard that put. Incidentally, yeah. by the way, but and, like as a young person in the main line, where like they might, you know, wherever they might end up living, they might be the youngest person in the church by decades, right? If they decide to go, but yeah. I think you have to find something compelling about Jesus. I think to like want to keep showing up in in the spaces that you know I'm involved in um and to me like i mean the 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 most compelling parts and i'll i'll unpack the theological language but are the incarnation and the resurrection of like the idea that god so wants to be with us and be close to us that like god came on earth as one of us and like was present with humanity in that way um to me that's a compelling vision of god and then Mm. the concept of resurrection and the idea that like ultimately life and love and god will triumph over death and grief and injustice and you know the the hope that is represented in that the while i mean while our world is like (laughs) falling apart um and while we're called to like take actions to like you know we're we're not called to just you know be passive and hope and wait for the resurrection but i think to me that's a fueling idea of like even though it looks like all of the terrible things in the world will always win like i don't think that's true Right. I, on some deeper reality, I think that like love and life and God are more powerful, even though that doesn't always appear <laughs> to be the case. And so for me, I think those are the like pillars of what is attractive or compelling about um, the Christian story. Um, yeah. I hear so much hope and just a sense of resolute optimism. In that. And I suppose not a small commitment to imagination as well Mm. in trying to trying to envision a world as you're as you're describing that is so much better and Mm. than 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 the world that you see in the moment. Yeah. Well, and I, and this is like my creative writing background, I think, but I, I see priesthood as really being about storytelling in a way of, you know, how do we proclaim this story of God and God's people that I think we find in scripture? Um, It's a complicated story in scripture, but sure. how do we proclaim that story in a way that connects with people today? And how do people then connect their own stories and their their own ways of interpreting their life and their world to that story? Like, how do we help people see themselves as a part of that bigger narrative? And I think that was one of my big draws to the priesthood was the idea of working with story in that way and Mm. sometimes you know just reminding people of like the story of a god who loves them 
because it's not always like new information, right? When you're preaching, like it's it's not like, oh, I need to come up with the most unique <laughs> interpretation of this passage ever. Um, but sometimes I think it's just in presence or in preaching, just like reminding people like this might be a story you already know, but like yeah. God loves you. I want to turn to... Um this uh, this work this career that you've developed um uh, of creative writing we met at yale divinity school specifically berkeley divinity school at yale the anglican studies um, wing and the institute of sacred music um thank you martin jean um and and chris wyman and maggie don and all of those wonderful people who were yes. there at the time and then i know um you're also a very brilliant poet and and hymn text writer how what was the story of that developing and and these two ideas of ministry and creative writing sort of merging together into this work of priesthood as storytelling i think writing i've been in love with writing forever since i was six seven and you know consistent throughout my childhood that was my dream of like being an author and mm. um people knew me as like that writer girl in part because i had this amazing third grade teacher who i showed her a short story that I wrote and she like put it in the library for other kids to check out, which I, I just look back. I'm like, that's so sweet. And then like in middle school, the people would bring it up to me and I would like cringe. I was like, ah, yeah. Um, so I've always loved writing and that was initially what I only what I planned to study in college. So I went to Susquehanna University, which has um, a great creative writing program. While I was there, I ended up like adding first a religion minor and then like getting really into it. So that was kind of going on at the same time, this like opening up, uh, I think, of my mind in terms of how I approach reading the Bible, how I approach thinking about my faith. And at the same time, I started getting really into poetry in college. I think it's much harder to like tackle ideas in the same way in prose or in fiction. I yeah. think you can, but it, it, it's like... I think you have to be very talented to pull it off in a not didactic way, whereas poetry, poetry felt like it was more fit for wrestling with the things I wanted to wrestle with. So I started writing a lot of things about like women in the Bible back in college that have ended up getting published now. Um, yeah. So... That was really, I guess, the start of the focus on poetry. And I think kind of going into seminary and being at Yale, I was always still like occasionally writing and sending things out to lit mags and getting published here and there and like yeah. figuring out if I'm going into parish ministry. So I feel like once I actually got through seminary and, you know, started my life here in Amherst and started my ordained life with some of that more settled I, f I feel like I've been able to explore again more of the mm. poet vocation and calling um 
because I'm not like actively in as great a level of discernment as I was about ministry, right? So I, and I think I just was super social in New Haven. Like I just was always bopping around somewhere. Um, And I think I just have more time to write now that I'm not like surrounded by other human beings constantly. And yeah, so in the past few years, I have been really happy that like, you know, I've had more poems published and now have had two chapbooks, which is just a fancy word for tiny collection of poetry Um, and have a full length collection. So like a normal size book. So it's called Jesus Merch, a catalog in poems. And it's coming from um, Fernwood Press, which is an imp- a poetry imprint of Barclay Books, which is a wow. small Quaker publisher um, out in Oregon. Early in the pandemic, I was trying to find things to mail to children from church. So here's an example. I don't think I ever gave these out. I'm holding up a little cheap penguin that says jesus warms my heart Um, we'll put it on the we'll put it on on the youtube channel and on the instagram so that people can Um, see it oh wait these are the things i really love this one of my friends calls this the nerdy bible it's a little plastic (laughs) bible with arms and legs and glasses on this actually did get sent out to kids um and i have of course extras on my desk because i love them um but <laughs> I, I, so love I was it too. I was looking through um yeah the this online catalog of like cheap kids christian stuff and there's just so many weird things yes. that they sell um and so I think the first poem I wrote it was this inflatable beach ball that was like construction themed Oh, it was supposed to be an inflatable wrecking ball that's like, Jesus wrecks my sin or something. Um, (laughs) And I sent it to a group chat of my friends. And this is why it's it's always good to have writing community because I was joking. I said, I should write a poem about this. And they were like, but you have to actually write a poem. (laughs) Um, So I wrote a poem about that. And it was really fun to write. Um, And so I decided I am just going to keep looking for weird things on this website. And I'm just going to write until I don't feel like writing them anymore. And so early COVID, everything's locked down. I just wrote, I don't know, 40 poems or something from this (laughs) website. Um, And so I knew... I was writing enough for it to be going towards a book, but I was like, wow. I need, I need to bring in some variation in sure. here. And so what I ended up doing pre-COVID, I had been and I had visited the Yale British Art Center, yeah. which I love. I love the Yale British Art Center and the Yale Art Gallery. Um, and there was this exhibit on Victorian board games, which I found fascinating. And I bought like the big art book that um, they sell about the exhibition, uh, which I had like never bought anything like that before because um, they're kind of expensive. It was like a $60 book or something. Oh, but wow. I just okay. like, 
I just had that like my creative energies were like, I need this. Um, so I bought it. But then I, I'm pretty sure I had it just like in my apartment sitting for like yeah. a year. Cause I, I knew in the back of my head, I was like, I want to write something about these. But it took writing these other poems for me to realize, oh, they, these can go together. So I wrote some poems based off of the Victorian board games because obviously a lot of them have religious messages in them and a lot of kind of like Christian content. And then my third kind of source that I brought in was just looking at Etsy and eBay for like 20th century Christian games and Sunday school s- stuff. So I have things from the 50s and the 20s and the <laughs> 80s that people were selling. And so, yeah, I think initially it was about kind of exploring the implicit theologies in yeah these like commercial items that we sell have sold bought or whatever um a connection I, between american christianity and late stage capitalism yeah get out of town but then i think what ended up being really interesting is like i think someone could write a book that was just like a critique sure. of all these things but that just wasn't that interesting to me. Like sure. there, there are poems that are definitely critical of some of the messages of the merchandise. And then there are poems where in the weird item or like I find yeah. some connection to my life in some way. And it becomes like a dialogue partner for like something that I'm going through. So to me, I don't know. There's something there was something that captured me in a lot of these weird, cheap, <laughs> mass-produced items <laughs> and like leaning into that for the sake of the poems. So yeah, that's kind of how that came together. And yeah, it was really different because I like wrote it all as a project as opposed to like yeah. my chapbook that just came out, Woman is Communion, was me like putting together poems I wrote over the course of like seven years and trying to like see how they connected and fit together. Yeah. Whereas this was like, I kind of wrote feverishly for a couple of months and I knew <laughs> I knew that I wanted it all to be one project and come together that's amazing the um the phrase that comes to mind when you talk about mass produce like little toys like that in mm. in a in a religious sort of target audience is made in china but for jesus well and the name i mean and i i always am like why won't they change the name of this the company is oriental trading oh no and i'm always like why <laughs> why wouldn't you update your name like because i i have some history of the company in in the author's note and it you know i think it was founded in the early 1900s yeah uh by a man who's a japanese immigrant and like yeah, so he named it that, but I'm like, why hasn't anyone since been like, maybe it's time to change the name? Gosh, so many, I, I, I remember so many like childhood days, like, because like we, we were the family that did all the merchandising for like Sunday schools, mm-hmm. getting like the Oriental Trading Company, like print catalog. Packet, yeah. Exactly. 
and like all of the glossy pictures of like the the censored like church safe versions of like all of like the, the fairground games and like the little toys um yeah <laughs> well, yeah and because i think if i'm remembering correctly i think they started out with like carnival materials as what they sold and then they like transitioned into Sunday school. That might not be right. I have to, (laughs) I'll I'll have to look up to make sure that's right. But I feel like some, some religious scholar in the PhD in religious studies department at Yale is now going to do like a detailed, like dissertation about like the impact of the Oriental trading company. They should, because I think, I think it says a lot, like one, what we like give to children. Right. And like, what yeah what we sell as representative of different stories of our faith i'm trying to remember like there's one i forget what the actual product was but i just remember it was about mary and martha and it was like martha is like frowning and angry and like mary's smiling <laughs> and it just sell that story to kids <laughs> If there's anything that I've learned about um, what work I've done in children's ministry is that kids are 100, maybe a thousand percent smarter than what we give them credit for, Mm. for sure. Yeah. I want to talk about one of the specific expressions of your writing that Mm. that you told me about and that I saw on your Instagram um, that you picked up during the pandemic and you turned to stand up comedy. Yes. So... I had been wanting for a while. There's a comedy studio like 15 minutes from where I live. Nice. Um, and I had been wanting to do their stand-up class pre-COVID. Um, yeah. And it was always like sold out every <laughs> time I tried <laughs> to register. Sure. Um, and then this past fall, you know, the their classes opened up again, masked. Nice everyone um required to be double vaccinated um so they were doing it as fairly safely for being in person sure. um so i signed up and it, i mean i think my main motivation was just like i wanted to be around other people um <laughs> and you know having moved in the past few years to like a new place your your attempt to like make a social life gets very yeah. interrupted yeah. in a global pandemic naturally um right. so i think that was my main motivation um to me there's something very there was something very freeing about the class because mm. obviously i like get up and speak in front of other people on a regular basis when i yeah. preach but to me, that's like, you know, there there are stakes to that, right? Where I'm like, yeah. I want to be offering something useful for people. And I'm like, also aware in the back of my head, like, I am hired to do, to do this. <laughs> like, people are paying me to, like, offer up something worthwhile. Sure. Um, and to be able to just have a venue where, you know, I could get up and talk for five minutes and like, it does not really have any consequence for my life. If I bomb, 
or yeah. like yeah. if if what I have to say is like not very relevant or, you know, it just like doesn't matter. And I think, you know, share different parts of myself that I would not necessarily share uh, from a pulpit or sure. in a parish setting. Um, sure. <laughs> so, yeah. And it was interesting because I a lot of like what I ended up writing about for my stand up class was often things I have written poems about, but like just coming at it from a different tone. So I feel like my first chapbook that came out was called Prayer Book for Contemporary Dating. And it was a lot of like <laughs> dating and relationship poems that like have some elements of humor to them, but like I think are relatively like sincere. No, sure. They're not written to like to be funny i think some funny comes out but there's a different tone when you're writing for humor or satire yeah and i imagine also the the experience both of writing about and then the actual experience of dating as a clergy person must be must be fertile ground for for poetry and comedy yes yeah and i think towards the end of I took three cl three sessions of the stand up class where I was like I have to start talking about something else cuz I it's just like the most obvious material because you just yeah. get you just get laughs from like people don't ex people don't expect at all for someone who is a priest to go up and honestly say anything honest about or like <laughs> swear like, just me swearing, <laughs> which, like, if someone knew me in my social life would not be, like, a shocking thing. But, um, <laughs> you just get a lot of easy mileage out yeah. of it, I feel yeah. like. So uh, towards the end of those classes, I was like, I have to challenge myself to, the, you know, try some <laughs> other material. Yeah, it's different to approach something with the thought of, like, okay, how can I present this in in a way that just is funny and yeah. you know that people can enjoy the humor of it so i did a little um hybrid poetry reading slash stand-up set um a couple of months ago with my new chat book um because it's just had been something i wanted to try because i feel like they're in conversation with each other i think it went okay i i would like to try it again at some point yeah um but and i sold a couple books so yeah. <laughs> to my comedy classmates so it, yeah but I, I i'm interested in how those things could possibly come together in my life oh boy i um well well one i i would i would i would pay to see like a a stand-up poetry slam that would be amazing too i uh i i wonder i know we talked about this like a, a tiny little bit um i i wonder if you might be willing to grace us with a reading yes um so this is called to adam adam i now always tack a sigh to your name a stand-in for more precise feelings I know I shouldn't be mad still, but I am. It's personal, not principle. That you were the one to betray me, the same one who shared conversations unlike any I'd known my whole life. 
Forget that my life was only a day old. Forget that you were my only option. It was still extraordinary. The opening in me meeting the opening in you. To be fair, we didn't know how to be closed yet. Now we have learned to hold words under our tongues, vary the angles of shoulders, narrow and soften eyes. Adam, remember the way you kissed my tears, though we didn't know what they were yet. That my body had guessed at truth, no apple needed to intuit that perfection was temporary. You pressed your lips to each drop, telling me God had said you could drink of any water. All was yours for the tasting. That was the start. You tasted me in the dark and I tasted you back. And we didn't know shame yet, but it still seems special. Adam, you didn't even call me by name. The woman that you gave me. During those talks we had, the ones we'll never have again, you said it over and over. Eve, Eve, Eve. Each time like a key finding its proper slot. But now all words are different. And when I hear you repeat my name, it's ownership, irritation, lust if we're lucky. Recognition of us as separate two, bound together by guilt and circumstance. Unable to repeat the miracle of that first day. Staying up all night talking. Bright with the hope exclusive to those who don't yet know the need for it. Woo! Um... That's going to sit with me. The, the thing that, that strikes me about that is that, the, at least in my experience of reading that story, as very reflecting on the text that I've read, like it's very, it's a very visceral story. Like it's a very mm. intimate, very deeply personal story. But that that because I think I suspect probably a, of the context in which I'm used to reading it, like it's it's not something that you think is very embodied or or incarnational. Yeah. Um, well. And I shared this in my like poetry stand up set, but mm. but it's been a while, so it's not gonna come come off funny, but that's okay. Um I actually wrote that poem when I was writing a lot of poems about men and like yep. people who had <laughs> broken my heart and like just yeah. a lot of like angry poems about guys. And they were not good. And I was like, what? <laughs> I like had all of this like negative energy about, you know, my romantic life, but I was not happy with how the poems were turning out. And I was like, how can I, how can I like do this in a more creative way um, that will like channel that energy, but also allow me to step back from like the personal yeah. details. Yeah. And, but I was like, I can just pick men from the Bible who I feel like are disappointing in, <laughs> in similar ways to how men have disappointed me. And I will just project my personal disappointment onto the like biblical characters. Um, and so, and it's, re and it's also funny because I'm not exactly sure 
which guy I was really angry at when I wrote that poem. Um, <laughs> but I like know that that is there in the background that like I was thinking about a very personal story and situation and I was fusing that with the biblical narrative and where I saw it connect. Um, yeah, I was at... Um, one of our classmates, Greg Johnston, who is a priest in yes. uh, Boston, he had me come do a reading for his church, which was so lovely. And it's funny because I'm like reluctant to read my poems to my own church, but at someone sure. else's church, I'm like, yep, let's go. <laughs> um, and someone asked me like how much of the voice of like the women characters in the poems, how much of it is like actually my voice and how sure. much is actually me. I feel like poets are always reluctant <laughs> to answer that question. Yeah. Um, but I think it definitely varies by poem. I think, I think it's natural that, you know, I, I'm interested in these poems and exploring and exploring these women characters who like mm. are not very fleshed out. But I think, yeah, then it pro they probably do get fleshed out with like parts of me and my experiences and, you know, how I would be feeling if I were mm. in the midst of, you know, that biblical narrative. Well, I'm so grateful um, that, that you read. Um, the book is called Woman as Communion. And I'm, I'm assuming anyone can get it anywhere where they, they, they get books. Yes, it is easiest to get it probably from my publisher's website, Game Over mm -hmm. Books. It's in a few bookstores, uh, but you can always request it at your bookstore or library yeah. if they don't have it. But. Amazing. Well, as we're coming to the end of our time, I just have one more question um, for you. And that is, um, what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? Oh, that's a good question. I think something I've been thinking a lot about lately is like, how do I phrase this? Making spaces that allow not allow making spaces that give people the opportunity to like connect with themselves to connect with their spirit and with god in like an open and exploratory way and i i've been really kind of fascinated by um using the arts and literature more in parish ministry, which is something I feel like I was doing with our youth already, but have been doing more of for adults in our congregation as well. Of So like right now we're doing a weekly poetry meditation and I, I have a different contemporary poem every week. And then I basically pretend I'm Padre Gotuma of Poetry Unbound. If you're familiar with that, I give my little reflection on the poem, except we're on Zoom live. And then I give people reflection prompts and we like have time to meditate and pray. And then we come back together. And for me, that's the most yeah. interesting part because people open up in a way that... I don't think they necessarily would do without having something to respond to. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, people share these personal things or they'll share about their like perspective on God that 
yeah. the poem brought up for them. So I, I don't know. I guess I, I want to do more of that, of like creating opportunities for people, yeah, to connect with themselves and with God and to like share in that with other people. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing in terms of like parish work is just like I hope people feel that I cared for them you know that the congregations I was in you know at the end of the day you know none of us can do this work perfectly but that people can feel like yes Megan loved us and cared about us yeah beautiful Megan McDermott thank you so much for being on the show and for lingering with me a bit today. Well, thank you for inviting me. My thanks to my guest, the Reverend Megan McDermott. You can buy her books, find out more about her work, and follow her on Twitter, and check out her website at the links in the episode description. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia in the unceded neighborhood of the Black Bottom community and on the ancestral land of the Lenape Nation, who remain here in the era of the Fourth Crow and fight for official recognition by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to this day. You can find out more about the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania and how you can support the revitalization of their culture by going to lenape-nation.org. Our associate producers are Willa Jaffe and Kia Watkin. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed caption video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good. <laughs>